All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, can, turning back to this book. For those of you who are new with us, welcome. Uh, we, we've been sort of working through this letter in 1 Corinthians, and it's a letter written to a really kind of a dysfunctional church, a church with a lot of talent, a lot of potential, but also a lot of problems. I, I call the church in Corinth the blessed mess. They were a blessed mess, blessed by God, but also messy. And today we come as Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing this letter, addresses another part of the mess in this church, uh, and he talks about a, a difficult situation. And let me just read the text, and then we'll, we'll go into it. For, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast." the bread of sincerity and truth. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. If that, in that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you uh, not, that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Some of you, a few in the church may be familiar with this little blue book. It's called Church Membership. It's written by a guy named Jonathan Lehman. And uh, it's, it's a book that, that new members in our, our church, people going through the new member process, uh, read through. And uh, it's super, super simple. Look how small, awesome, small, uh, easy to read, plain language book, just about what church membership is, why, why it's practiced. Just a super helpful book, if, if that's a question or a thought you've had. Um, but anyway, uh, Jonathan Lehman tells uh, a story in this book about his own church in Washington, D.C., and about a member of that church, a guy named Mono. And uh, according to the story in this book, uh, Mono came from Indonesia. And he came here to the United States, immigrated here, and uh, he uh, was sitting on the mall in Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July, and someone sat next to him, and they struck up a conversation, and through that conversation, the person told him the gospel. The person told him that Jesus Christ had been crucified for our sins and raised from the dead, and that now by repenting and believing in Jesus, you could be forgiven and saved. And, and Mono believed, 
And Mono came to faith in Christ. And he was baptized and became a member of that church in Washington, D.C. And he was kind of grown up in his faith in that church. And people started loving him and he loved them. And it was a great positive thing. But based on, according to the story, something eventually kind of came to light in that process. It, it came to light that, that Mono was not being completely truthful about his immigration status. And that he was working but he wasn't telling his employer what his real status was. He was basically lying about his status. And people were like, well, what do we do about this? I mean, first of all, that's just a huge third rail kind of issue. <laughs> you know, I mean, immigration is like, whoa, don't even go there. People have very strong opinions on both sides of that. But, but you know, w- what do we do with this, with this person? Uh, but when one thing is clear, Jesus didn't lie. And people who are disciples of Jesus shouldn't lie. And if you're lying to your boss, you shouldn't do that. So people started saying to him, look, you gotta tell the truth, man. You gotta come clean. No, can't do it. Mm-mm. Too much at risk. More people, brother, we love you, but if you're gonna follow Jesus, I mean, we don't lie like this. We gotta, come on, come on, come on. No, not gonna do it. Not gonna go tell the truth. And it, it kept going, kept going. More people got involved until finally it came to the point where the church at a meeting voted to expel him from the church. So the church said, we're gonna vote to make you not a member of this church anymore because there's a kind of a clear, obvious, known thing that we're all supposed to be doing and you don't seem to want to do that and so we're removing you from the church. What do you think of that? Like, wow, <laughs> you know, does that really happen? I've heard of getting dumped by a girlfriend and uh, laid off from a job, but you know, expelled from a church, like really? And over all issues, you know, immigration, it's like, oh, that's just so explosive. You bring up immigration politically and people are on both sides of that issue and, and it just goes to, you know, it goes to 11 really fast. People are like, wow, immigration, you know? So like of all the issues to pick, why did you pick that issue to, to have to deal with in a church? Um, and besides, aren't churches supposed to be places of love, acceptance, forgiveness, non-judgmentalness, tolerance, kindness. Didn't, wasn't Jesus a man of peace and love? Shouldn't we be trying to help people get into churches these days? Not like, you know, bing, bing, fling people out of, it just seems so backwards. Isn't the church supposed to be a hospital for sinners where we, we re- rehabilitate people, not shoot the wounded? And yet, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, It appears, no, it is the case, that Paul is commanding the church in Corinth to do precisely this thing, to remove somebody from the church. So the first thing I want to do as we look at 1 Corinthians 5 is is I want to kind of just get our head around what the situation was there, what was going on what was taking place on the ground in Corinth. And as we look at 1 Corinthians 5, it seems that there was a problem in the church, and then Paul is writing to recommend a solution to that problem. So the problem in the church was actually twofold. The first problem was there was somebody who was uh, not obeying Christ, who claimed to be a follower of Christ. He says in verse 1, look at verse 1 again, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife. So so there was an incident of sexual immorality in the church. 
Uh, and that, that Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia, from which we get English words, porneia, and we get English derivatives from that. Um, and, and the Greek word porneia, when it's used by Paul or in the New Testament, it's kind of a, a sort of a catch-all blanket expression that, that includes all sexual activity outside of marriage. So any sexual activity outside of marriage is porneia. And we probably have to add that in the biblical understanding, marriage is a man and a woman. So any sex outside of marriage that's not between a married man and woman is porneia. God invented marriage. God invented sex. They're not our ideas, they're his idea. He gave them to us as a gift for a purpose so that in the, the unity of marriage, our sexuality would be a physical expression of the spiritual unity of the husband and the wife. That's why God gave it to us. So when we, when we use sex outside of God's parameters, we are in a sense in a state of rebellion against him and his plan. We're rejecting him. We're totally shunning his plan. And so that was what's going on in this church. And, and Paul says, look, and it's even of a type that doesn't even occur among pagans. I mean, Greco-Roman culture was very promiscuous. It was very loose morally. But Paul's like, you guys, there's something going on there that's not even Greco-Roman. There's some guy with his father's wife. Probably most scholars, based on the culture, have assumed this is sort of the guy's stepmother. So, you know, he's sleeping with a stepmother. And, and he's like, guys, this is like, no one even does this among the pagans. This is kind of Jerry Springer in the church. <laughs> what? You don't do this. Let me point out something else about this. And I think this is important. I'm going to say these two things. and You're going to hear me say these throughout the sermon. And I just want you to pay attention to this. Two things about what was going on. Number one, it was publicly known. See in verse one, it was actually reported. This is something that people know about. Okay? So, so, so it's something that others in the church have become aware of. Paul is on the other side of the Mediterranean and he's heard about this thing. It's so notorious. So it's publicly known. And the other thing about this is that, it, it is, that the man is not repenting of it. You know, he's not like, yeah, you're right. This is so wrong. Help me change. Okay, fine. I'll listen. He, he's just like, oh, I'm fine. I'm doing what I want. So it's publicly known and he's not turning away from disobedience to Christ. So that's the main problem. But there's a second problem, and it's in verse 2. The second problem is with the church. The church didn't do anything about it. Verse 2, Paul says, you're proud. Shouldn't you rather be filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? So rather than being like sad and broken and kind of embarrassed as a church, they're proud. And I don't think that necessarily means they're proud that the person's doing that. But I think probably what it means is more like you know, they're arrogant so that they're not, they're not sorry for things in the church. You know, you know when, when you're kind of in a prideful mentality, like when I sort of get on prideful myself, you know, when I'm prideful, I don't say sorry. I, 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 I don't admit my wrongs. It's all your fault. It's not my fault. You know, I, I won't apologize to others. I can't hear criticism very well. When I'm on a pride kick and I'm all full of myself, I'm not very open to correction, and I'm not ready to be sorry for things. So, so I think it's probably more like that. Like this church is so full of itself, and that's what, if you've been here the last several Sundays, as we've studied 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, Paul's been addressing this kind of arrogance in the church. 
And he's like, this arrogance is keeping you from being sorrowful and grieving this, this thing in your church that you need to deal with. And as a result, you're proud and you're not putting the guy out of the fellowship. So what are they supposed to do about it? What's the solution to this problem? And the solution that Paul is commanding in these verses is that this guy who's publicly known to be in disobedience and he's not sorry and he's not changing, that person needs to be removed from the fellowship of the church. They, they need to be uh, taken out of the membership. They need to be excommunicated, which you've heard that phrase before. Excommunicate simply means to be out of literally the communion. You know, we take communion together, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. So it's to put someone out of that and say you're no longer part of that Lord's Supper, Eucharist sacrament together. Notice how many times Paul says it. Verse 2, you should have put this man out of the fellowship. He ends the chapter in verse 13. Look at the end. Expel the wicked man from among you. He says it in verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan. We'll talk about that in a minute. He says it in verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast. He says it in verse 11. With such a man do not even eat. And so at the beginning of the chapter, at the end of the chapter, and again and again and again in the chapter, directly, metaphorically, in so many different ways, he's like, the solution is this person needs to be no longer considered a member of your church. You need to expel this person from the fellowship. And Paul is so kind, he even tells them how to do it. It's kind of like church discipline for dummies. You know, he just, he's like, okay, and now I'm going to tell you, this is what you do, right? Follow the steps. Step number one. I've already signed off. Verse 3. Even though I'm not physically present, I'm already with you in spirit. I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. I know you guys are scared. I know this is freaky. I know this is heavy. Maybe you don't feel like you should be doing this. I'm telling you, I've already signed the papers, so to speak. You're authorized. I'm Paul, the apostle. You can do this. Number two. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. So you guys got to get together in, in some kind of assembly of the church. You don't do this via email. You, you don't do this kind of, you know, procedurally. This is something the church has to get together and do. And then verse 5, what do you do? You hand the man over to Satan. What in the world does that mean? Wow. Hand someone over to Satan. Wow, that sounds really weird. Is that like the occult? I mean, what is that? Do you draw a pentagram in the church and like put the guy in it and be like, we hand you, you know, like what? Like, how do you hand someone over to Satan? What does that mean? It's a really strange phrase. As I've wrestled with it, what, what I think it means, and I'll, I'll sort of show you why. I think what it means is, is the church is in a sense no longer recognizing this person as part of the kingdom of God, and they're kind of putting that person back in the category of being in the kingdom of the world. That, that they're no longer part of the sphere of salvation, and they're going back into the sphere of Satan. And, and the church is saying, we're sort of formally putting you there in that place. We, 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 not that the church saves anybody. The church doesn't save people. The church can't unsave people. But the job that God has given local churches is to have the authority to either acknowledge people as Christians or to cease acknowledging someone as a Christian. Not that we make them Christians, but we kind of acknowledge it. It's kind of like Jesus hires people onto his team through salvation, but the church's job is to hand out the jerseys or to take the jersey back. 
So, so, you know, think about church membership. You know, what's church membership? It's somebody coming to the church and saying, I'm a real Christian. I want to be in this church. And the church says, oh, cool. Well, well tell us, like, how'd you become a Christian? Well, da 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 And okay, wow, that does sound like you're a Christian. Okay, welcome to this congregation. You're a member. All right, and we're going to, you know, grow with you and help you. And, and on the other end of the spectrum, though, it's kind of like church discipline is when, it, is when a church says, you know... You may be a Christian, but dude, your life contradicts it profoundly. There's a pattern of disobedience here so that if you're a follower of Jesus, like we can't tell anymore. You might be. We could be wrong. We're not infallible. But just looking at your life, it's like real followers of Jesus don't persist in disobedience week after week, month after month, year after year, even when they're being confronted about it. That's not what real followers of Jesus do. This is important. To be a Christian does not mean that you never sin. Christians sin, Christians struggle. What it means to be a Christian is, if you're really a disciple of Jesus, is when you're disobedient to God, you repent when it comes to your attention, and you get back on track. And so the Christian life is kind of like this. But over time, it continues to grow and progress. So what you want to see in the Christian life is not perfection, because in that case, we'd all get kicked out. But it's that somebody is growing in grace over time, and they're quick to repent when they're brought to sin, to see the sin in their lives, and when it becomes blatant to other people or to themselves. So when someone is shown it, and it's obvious and clear and unrepentant, and they don't do anything about it, well, then it's like, how can we know you're really a Christian? Just because you say you are? I mean, but that the evidence of being a Christian is a changed life. So, so that's sort of the logic behind it. Or to look at it another way, it's, it's as if Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians 5 the very end of a process that Jesus outlined in his ministry. Okay? Um, look, look at what Jesus had to say about this. Put a bookmark here in 1 Corinthians Go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. That's on page 974, if you're using a pew Bible. Page 974, Matthew, chapter 18, verse 15. That Paul was so mean. Wow, we need to go back to Jesus. He was so nice. Jesus never would have said anything like this. Well, look what Jesus said. Matthew 18, verse 15, page 974. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, if two of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. So Jesus gives us a process. He says, look, if you're in a church family and someone is struggling and sin and they sin against you, just go to him. Don't make a big deal out of it. Don't blow it up. Don't make a lot of drama. Just the two of you get together, one-on-one, 
confront them. The goal is not, ha I got you sinning. No, the goal is, come on back, come on back. Let's get back on track. We all struggle. I'm here for you. Let's get back on track. And if the person says, okay, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry I hurt you. Then, hooray, you won. You both won. But if they won't listen, then you bring in some other witnesses. Again, that word witness is key because, again, it implies that this is something observable. This is something you can point to. And then you got two other people going like, yeah, we see it too, man. You know, I'm not trying to be heavy-handed here, but you got it. You know, you've got to change. It's not right. Come on back. Come on back. No, no. And, and if that happens enough times, Jesus said eventually reaches a point where it comes to the whole congregation. And you tell it to the church. And if the person won't listen to the whole church, you then treat them as a tax collector or a pagan, which I take to mean kind of the same thing as hand them over to Satan. You're sort of putting them outside the sphere of the church and you're recognizing them as belonging to the sphere of the world. Because, you know, what would a pagan or a tax collector be? It would be someone outside of the people of God in that day. So, so you're sort of formally recognizing as, you know, you're no longer one of these disciples of Jesus. You may be, but we can't tell as far as we know. And so what I think is happening is that Jesus outlines the whole process and Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is describing what to do at a certain event, how to execute the very end of that process in that specific situation. So go back to 1 Corinthians 5 then. I think that's what that means when he says, hand the person over to Satan. So there it is. There's the, the problem. Blatant, unrelenting disobedience in the church. The church is not doing anything about it. The solution is that final step of expulsion from the membership of the church to consider that person not a disciple, whether or not they really are, is in God's hands. But could we really do this? Is this really, ah, it seems like this is so sketchy, you know, like, wow, I can see so many ways this could go wrong. I mean, churches have abused this. People have been abused by churches using these verses. Um, you know, you're just like, wow, there could be so many problems with this. This seems like this could really drag a church down. Ooh, well, there's a lot of downsides to this. You know, what are the upsides to this? It seems like this is a lot of risk and not a lot of return on investment for this kind of risky step for a church to do. I know a pastor. I just talked to about a month ago, and he was like, yeah, just pray for me. He goes, we, we had to go through this process with someone in our church, and we removed him from the church. And he says, now the guy's threatening to sue me. So, you know, should we be doing things like this that could get us sued? You know, it's like, Really? What, what are the upsides? Why, why would we possibly be motivated to do this besides that Paul describes a process and, and sheer obedience? Are, are there specific upsides to this obedience that Paul would encourage us with? And as I look at this text, you see in verses five to the end of the chapter, I think Paul gives three positive motivations for this practice in the church. He gives us three reasons why this is an upside thing to do. In fact, Paul wants to argue that if you don't do it, there's actually more downsides than if you do do it. There's actually more of a downside to, to just kind of sweep things under the rug than there is to deal with a process like this. And so what are the upsides? What are the benefits of this step of church discipline and the whole process? Well, let me, let me show them to you. Number one, the first upside. 
we, we would practice this, number one, for the good of the person caught in sin. For the good of the person caught in sin. Or to put it more bluntly, if you love somebody, you will confront somebody. You know, if, if you really love that guy, then you're going to want to see him change. Look again at verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan. Why? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and the spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So right now, sin's got the upper hand in this guy's life. His sin is what's ruling him. And Paul is saying, you know, his spirit is not following Christ. And so we're trying to destroy that sin and so that his spirit can be saved and trust in the Lord. We're praying for God to save him. It's kind of like, you know, the philosophy of sometimes you've got to hit rock bottom before you're ready to listen. Sometimes you've got to go scrape the bottom of the barrel before you're ready to pay attention. And it's one of those sort of, of situations where you're doing it so that that person might come to grips with the direness of their situation. We're trying to save them for the day of the Lord. You know, if, if we really believe there's a hell to be avoided, and we believe there's a heaven to be gained, then the most loving thing we can do to another human being is to let them know how to avoid the one and how to attain the other. It, it, that's more loving than anything else you could do to, for another person, is how to flee from hell and how to achieve eternal life, which is through faith in Christ. And so it's a loving thing to help this person. Discipline should be loving. You know, just pull the camera lens back. You know, we've been talking about discipline as expelling someone from a church. But, you know, discipline's bigger than that. We have discipline all over our lives. And why do we do discipline? It's for our good. You know, if any of you are in sports, there's discipline. Right? Coaches discipline the people on their teams. They make them do drills. They make them do, you know, again, again, do it. And, you know, the players are sucking wind and they're tired and they're exhausted and no, no, do it again. And, and why is the coach doing that? It's for those athletes to become better. My, I, my two sons uh, uh, over here, they're both swimmers and like, I'll, you know, they'll come home from swim practice every day and I'll be like, so what'd you do today? And they'll tell me the drills they had to do and like, I want to go take a nap just hearing their drills. Like two hours of, you know, oh, we did, you know, 100s and then a 10 second rest and then another 100 fly and I'm like, you know, feeling nauseous just listening to it. And you might think like, oh, that coach is so mean. Why does he do that? Because he wants them to be fast. And you don't get fast in swimming or you don't get strong in sports unless you drill, unless there's discipline, right? Families have discipline. In a healthy family, we had all these families up here. In a healthy family, parents discipline children, right? If you love your kids, you will discipline them. You think, oh, I love my kids. I could never make them sad. Well, then you hate your kids because they're going to grow up to be little narcissists. Loving parents discipline children. In a healthy family, husbands and wives discipline each other. The wife says, you're not paying attention. And I say, you know, hypothetically, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, you know, I haven't been paying attention. I need to tune in at the dinner table, or I need to tune in, you know, when people are talking. I've got to get out of my world and, and tune into the family. You know, it's healthy discipline between spouses. In a healthy family, 
parents at times will even apologize to children when they've blown it. That's part of the discipline of being a family together. You know, the more we see our local church as a family, the more church discipline becomes logical. But the more we see a local church as a spiritual Walmart, the more church discipline will seem incomprehensible. It won't make any sense. But if this is a family, that's how families relate. We're trying to grow together. And so it is in the church. We practice all kinds of discipline to each other. You know, if, 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 you, you, know, if, if you see a friend in the church and they haven't been there for three, four weeks and you call them up and you say, dude, where you been, man? I'm worried about you. That's discipline. You're calling out, you're holding accountable, you're reaching out to a person because you love them. Because we, probably all of us here as a Christian, we all know that experience of, of seasons in our life where we've slid away from Christ. And it just, it was a week at a time, a week at a time, and suddenly there's three months where we weren't even in fellowship with other believers, and surprise, surprise, our faith is really weak. And we're finding ourselves in situations we never would have if we were walking tight with the Lord and with the church family. And so, so it's about, you know, reaching out to that person, and that's a kind of discipline. Listening to me preach a sermon is a kind of discipline. You're like, you're telling me. But, you know, I mean, think about it. You could be at home sleeping. You could be chilling out, getting ready for the patch. You could be cooking the wings, you know. But instead, you got up, you took a shower, you came here, you're sitting there listening. This is not easy listening to someone monologue for however long I, I monologue for. You know, it's, it takes mental discipline. You have to focus. This is an effort of the mind and the heart. Why are you doing this? It's because you want to hear God's word. And hopefully I'm pointing at God's word. And it's not just me you know, rambling about things. And because you know and I know that if we're going to grow in Christ, we need God's Word to teach us. So it's part of the discipline of, of growing in the Lord. And so there come those times when that discipline reaches a kind of nuclear option point. So like on a sports team, for instance, uh, the coach may just say to somebody who's totally blowing it, I hate to do this, but I've got to suspend you from the team. You're off the team for now. And until you can figure out where your priorities are, you're off. You've got to decide if you're going to be on this team or off this team. And that happens in sports. And why does, this, why does the coach do it? Because he wants to save that person, right? Same thing happens in families. Um, I have had many conversations over the years with members and people in the church and the community, very difficult, painful conversations and, and many of you have lived this in your lives, this excruciate, it's excruciating experience of having a family member who is an addict. Excruciating. So hard. Like, it just, you know, you talk to people, it sucks the life out of them. And, and so you, you work and you try, you do all these things, and sometimes you reach that very difficult point where, a, where you kind of have to excommunicate the family member. And you say, look, I love you. You'll we'll always love you. But you can't be in the house because you're stealing stuff and selling it so you can do drugs or whatever. You can't be in the house because of what you're bringing in to, to, for the other children to see. You can't be here. 
And so we're kind of reckoning you as if you're not a part of the family. Of course, we still love you and we want you to come back. And that's a hard step to do. But why do you do that, parents, if you've ever had to do that? So you hope they'll hit rock bottom. You hope they'll get treatment. You hope they'll come to their senses. And so there is a sense in which the church is a family of God also it's kind of like Paul and Jesus have put that, that nuclear option button in every local congregation and they've authorized local congregations to hit that button at certain times where they have to break the glass and say, oh, I hate to do this, but you've got to come to your senses. So it is for the good of the person, for the good of that individual. That's why we would even consider this because we love somebody and we don't want to just see them drift along because we're a family. That's what families do for each other. We hold each other accountable and spur each other on because the church is a family, not a Walmart. Second reason, just moving along quickly here, that we might practice this. One is for the good of the individual. Number two, the good of the church. It's for the good of the church, for the good of the rest of the congregation. That comes out clearly in verse six. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So the sin that they're not addressing is the yeast. The dough is the congregation. And he's saying there's a danger here of the yeast infecting the lump of dough. You've got to cut the tumor out sometimes before it metastasizes. If, I, imagine this church in Corinth. If they had let, just let this guy go on doing this thing. We don't necessarily know the outcome of this story, but let's say they just let it go on. What would that say to other members of the church of Corinth who are struggling to stay pure sexually? What does it say to them? What does it say to other members in the church who are trying to live a holy life and they see how this other person is being treated? Is, it, is that helping encourage them to keep standing firm? Is that telling them, yeah, you know, holiness is worth it, Jesus is worth it? It's sending the opposite message. So you're actually starting to infect the rest of the body with, with the wrong message. It's not helping people follow Jesus and edifying people. And so Paul says, you got to get rid of the yeast before it goes through the dough. And then in 7 to 8, I love 7 to 8. This is awesome. Paul hits that yeast and dough theme, and then he just launches into a theological riff about the Jewish Passover. This is so cool. It's kind of like he's playing rhythm most of this playing rhythm guitar. He's just keeping the rhythm, church discipline, and reasons. And then he hits the thing about yeast and he breaks into a guitar solo. He's like, yeast and the Passover. Okay. But he, wow, it goes off right here. Check it out. Verses seven to eight. Get rid of the old yeast. He just starts preaching. That you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Talking about the Passover. Not with the old yeast, the, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Going off. So he's making this really cool analogy. It's, it's like just like the Jewish people celebrate the Passover and eat unleavened bread, so the church has had Jesus be the Passover lamb, and now as a church, you're in a constant state of Passover. And so you've got to keep eating unleavened bread, but the leaven isn't actual yeast, it's sin. So it's like the church needs to be free from sin. You know, in Jewish families, I don't know if any of you here are raised in a Jewish family, Jewish background, maybe had Jewish friends, and you've been to a Passover celebration. One of the things you do in a Jewish family to get ready for Passover is you've got to get the yeast out of the house, and it's kind of a big like thing. 
they, where, where the, in, in Orthodox families, the dad will actually hide some yeast in the house, and the, it's like a yeaster egg hunt, where they go around, <laughs> and the kids go around looking for yeast in the house, and it's, it's a big game, and then the kids finally find it, and they have a feather, and they scoop it up with a feather, and they take it out of the house, and now you can officially start Passover, because the yeast has been removed, and then for seven days you eat matzah bread, and you finally have the Passover Seder, and, and you remember that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And so, so here's Paul saying, you know, all of that Passover stuff and the yeast and the unleavened bread and the matzah, that was all a prefigurement that has been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. His blood was shed to save us, the real Passover lamb. And just as in the Old Testament, they took the blood of the lamb and they put it over the doorpost and being in under the blood of the lamb saved them from the judgment of God, so the blood of Jesus has saved us and he's de-yeasted us, he's forgiven us of our sins. And so now let's live yeast-free lives. The Christian life is a constant state of Passover where we're living lives trying to get rid of the sin from our lives by God's grace. Isn't that awesome? It's like Passover, and he's just going crazy. It's a beautiful picture. Trying to explain this whole thing as the new Israel that we are, celebrating the fulfillment of the Passover. Can I just pause there for one second before I go to the last point? And, you know, we've been talking a lot in this message about uh, getting, how do you get out of the church forcibly? But how do you get in? How do you get in? How do you come become a Christian? How do you come to know Jesus? And the answer is right here in this text. It's because Jesus is the Passover lamb who was sacrificed. The way you become a Christian is, isn't by fixing your life up. It's by coming to Jesus and saying, my whole life has been yeast-filled. My whole life has not been lived for you. My whole life has been marked by things like verse 11. Sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, slander, drunkenness, addiction, swindling, and anger, and on and on. You could just let the list go on. My whole life has been lived against your laws, God. I don't know what to do about that. But Jesus was sacrificed. His blood was put on the cross. And so to be a Christian doesn't mean that you're some perfect person, but it means you, you confess the yeast and you come stand under the blood of the cross and you put your faith in Christ. That, that's how you become a Christian is through faith in what Jesus did. So to be a Christian is to be a forgiven person, saved by God's grace, and now by his power, de-yeastifying your life and living that holy, pure life that he's called us to progressively over time. I just encourage you to come to Christ. And, you know, if, if you'd like to know more about Jesus, come talk to me after the service. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, Jesus has changed my life. He's saved my life. I, I could introduce you to so many people here who could tell you how Jesus has changed and saved their lives. You probably know some of them. Just talk to them about it. It's the most important thing that you could ever deal with. Okay, last one. The practice of expulsion here is for the good of the, the person caught in sin. It's for the good of the church. And then really quickly, last one. It's for the good of our witness to the world. It's for the good of the witness of the gospel to the world. It's to make clear that the gospel of Jesus is legit, that Jesus is 
is the Son of God and that he really saves people, that it's not just a bunch of blah, 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 blah. Because if he really saves people, it should look different. And if it doesn't look different, then the gospel may not be true. So the world says, show me the proof. Well, the proof is a changed people. So that's like kind of verses 9 to, to 13 where he says, look, he says, you've got to make a judgment here. Look at verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? I'm not here to judge those outside the church. That's God's business. We've got to judge those inside the church. You say, what? We're supposed to judge people in the church? I thought we weren't supposed to be judgmental. No, no, no. We're not supposed to be judgmental, but there are times when we have to make judgments. We always have to make judgments. You make judgments all the time. That's different from being judgmental. Judgmental is like, you know, and there are churches like this where you get in the church and everyone's kind of like, you know, scoping each other out and, you know, and spying on each other and trying to catch each other and out holy roller each other. And, and you know, it's, it's always like, there's all these rules and it feels oppressive and legalistic and binding. And, and that's, not, that's not how it should be. We should be a community marked by grace. Grace should be the dominant note of our lives together, but also holiness. And, and so, so this kind of church we're talking about has the courage to make judgments when judgments are called for but it doesn't mean it have to be judgmental as a culture and as a spirit. And therefore expel the wicked man from among you. And what that does when we practice this is what Paul's talking about here. It makes the clear distinction between the world and the church. It paints a bright line in the sand. And, and this is a mixed metaphor. Anyway, it paints a bright line on the asphalt that says, there is a people of God and there is an outside of the people of God. And, and the way you know is that our lives are being changed. What's one of the main criticisms that people lob against the church? And sometimes rightfully so. Hypocrisy. All these people talk about Jesus. You look at their lives and they're just as bad as everyone else. You know, that's a disaster when that's true. We should, we should be different not perfect, not sinless, but we should be in a state of progressive change that people can see over time. And, and when you don't deal with these issues in the church, you're blurring that line between the church and the world. But when that line is clear, it's not a wall, but it's a line that says there is a people of God and there is an outside of the people of God. There's always been a line. There was inside the Garden of Eden and there was outside of the Garden of Eden. You know? There was inside the ark, and there's outside the ark. There's inside the camp of Israel, and then there's a category of being put outside the camp of Israel. When Israel settled in the promised land, there was a promised land with borders where you could be inside the land or you could be put outside of the borders of Israel. The temple, there were courts where you could be inside or outside. The church has a sense, it's not a physical boundary, but it's a spiritual boundary of inside the church and outside the church. And my friends, there is a heaven and there is a hell. And we bear witness to that when the church is not only loving but also holy and the church protects its holiness 
And by doing this, we're helping the world see that these things are real. And they're not just pipe dreams. This is real. And God is really doing this for the sake of our witness to the world. We need to practice discipline in all of its forms in a church. So Mono eventually went back to Indonesia. And at some point after he got back, he finally came to his senses and said, you know what? I was wrong. I was lying. I shouldn't have done that. And he wrote to the church and said, can you guys forgive me? He's like, how do I get restored to this church? This church that voted to expel me. And the church said, oh, we're so glad you did, that you wrote to us. And so the church at another meeting, you know, in a kind of classic New England town meeting sort of way, there was a motion put forward to express love, forgiveness, and acceptance of this person. And it was voted in paper, and it was sent to him. We love you. We forgive you. Praise God you're following Jesus. We acknowledge God's grace in your life. Praise God for his grace. And Mono is now, according to this, this book, I love to hear what he's doing today, but he, he started doing evangelistic work in Indonesia among a Muslim people group. You know, because of that, because God was working. And so there was a church that dared to discipline. There was a sinner who was helped by it. And now the gospel is among a people group. It's going forward. And Jesus is Lord, and he's in charge of it all. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we, we want to be like you, and yet we fall so short. None of us is perfect. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to keep striving for you by your grace. And Lord, I pray that we would love each other in this church like a family. That we would pray for each other and support each other and contribute to each other and at times hold each other accountable like a family. And God, I just pray that we would love you so much that we would even do hard things if you ever call us to those difficult seasons in the life of a church. Believing that you have good purposes for people who are lost their way. You have good purposes for the church. You have good purposes for the gospel. Help us to believe that and trust that, Lord. Help us to believe that you're bigger than all of our fears and worries and doubts. And Lord, I just pray for South Shore Baptist Church, starting with my own life, that we would be a holy people, a loving people. Uh, we just think about Jesus. He was so holy. He never, he never budged on the truth. And yet, people were drawn to his love. And so, God, I pray that we would be that kind of church that was solid on your truth and yet in a winsome, attractive way that just drew people to Christ. Oh, Lord, that's how we want to be. So help us to be holy and winsome with the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.